Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly podcast, where you'll get the real rundown of what's going on in Scottish politics. We have the interviews, the gossip, and sometimes the laughs. So please join us. And remember, when anyone tells you they're not interested in politics, you tell them you know a podcast that can help them out with that. And you can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. So enjoy. They say a week is a long time in politics, but when it comes to the ins and outs of the workings of the Scottish Parliament's committee set up to investigate the Scottish Government's handling of harassment complaints against the former First Minister Alex Salmond, it seems that every hour that passes brings a different turn. And with cross-party MSPs frankly on the verge of throwing in the towel on a thankless task to try and get answers as to why and how the Scottish Government managed to bungle a complaints process later deemed unlawful and which cost the taxpayer upwards of half a million pounds in legal costs, we continue with a soap opera that is rapidly descending into a comedy of errors. This week, Salmond himself was meant to be appearing before the committee that was basically set up in his name, but because he now feels that he would be unable to speak the whole truth and nothing but the truth, my lord, because of legal constraints imposed by the Crown, that means he can't speak to his own evidence and that the committee has been banned from publishing, but that its members have been told they could go and read on other media websites, his appearance has been put on hold. Indeed, that may be put on hold forever, but he may preside over his own press conference next week just to tell the world what he says is the truth and what could be important information for an inquiry that is all about him, but not really about him, but that he can't say at the actual inquiry. Yeah, well, just watch this space. Meanwhile, Salmond was replaced with a return visit to the committee from Nicola Sturgeon's husband, who, keep up, also happens to be the chief executive of the SNP, who was recalled to give evidence to the committee to try and bring clarity to his last lot of evidence that frankly didn't make sense to anyone, let alone himself, when he admitted that he couldn't really speculate about what went on in his own head, never mind what went on in his own living room, at a meeting between his wife and his former boss, Alex Salmond who he seemed to think might have just driven three and a half hours from his home and stricken on the off chance that Nicola might have put the kettle on. Well, Lib Dem committee member Alex Cole Hamilton was having none of it. He just didn't believe him. Tory MSP Murdo Fraser reported him to the Crown, eventually tweeting, is anyone in this whole sorry affair capable of telling the truth? Well, there was no answer to that. And Labour member Jackie Bailey just went for the kill. She accused the SNP chief of dancing on the head of a pin, which, to be fair, is a skill. Murrell, meanwhile, kept glancing shiftily to the side during his appearance in the committee via Zoom, and when asked if he was alone in the very room where his wife, the FM, and the former FM had apparently discussed matters that Murrell had not bothered himself to ask about, he talked about the magpies in his garden. Well, at least there were two of them, so that brings some joy. But it couldn't hide the fact that there was a feeling of a bad omen hanging over all of this. And at the same time, as Murrell was hopefully counting his magpies, his colleague at the SNPHQ, Sue Roddick, was releasing a statement to the press condemning the committee for invading the privacy of the complainers in the Salmon case by ironically divulging that she was a complainer, albeit her complainant didn't make it to court, having told the police about an alleged incident of physical aggression by Salmon against her that had happened apparently 10 years previously. 
This revelation was immediately countered by a statement from the principal assistant to the SNP chief whip at Westminster, Anne Harvey. Yes, these people are all on the same side, apparently, but she accused the party of coordinating a witch hunt against Salmond. Harvey said she wanted to set the record straight. Gosh, I wish someone would. So Harvey said she was with Sue Ruddock at the time of the alleged incident, and she knows that because she was interviewed by the police about it during the investigation into the former First Minister for a marathon nine and a half hours. She said then, and she says now, that the incident never happened. Ruddock, of course, then released another statement via party headquarters late last night, saying, Mr. Salmond clearly agreed he behaved inappropriately, as he called repeatedly to apologise. Miss Harvey was not present at the time of this incident. Ah well, another week, another bewildering set of events that has pitched SNP against SNP, just at the time that the SNP looks to be on the winning side of independence. And so that leads us to this episode's interview with SNP MP Joanna Cherry, who last week was herself sacked from the Westminster front bench, whereas a QC, she appropriately held the justice brief. But apparently, the team required new talent, and so she was replaced with someone who isn't a QC. Well, I start by asking Joanna if she can explain what is going on. So Joanna, lots of people, I think, are scratching their heads and wondering what on earth is going on with the SNP. I mean, I think your removal from the Westminster front bench last week kind of brought lots of internal issues out into the open. So even my 83-year-old mum, um, Blair Gowdy, phoned me to say, what's going on, Mandy? Can you explain it, Joanna? Well, I mean, I think it's it's a difficult question to answer, Mandy. Um, uh, you know, the party has succeeded so well in the last 15 years because we had a very positive message and we had um, a very tight sense of discipline and togetherness. But a number of fault lines have um, opened up in the party. There is dispute about um, the best way to secure a second independence referendum. And also some of us feel that not enough policy planning has been done for the campaign and for the transition period from union to independence. Then there is uh, the debate about how to reform the Gender Recognition Act. I sometimes hear journalists say it's a debate about trans rights. It's not. No, I don't think I've heard any politician from any party uh, say that they were um, against trans rights. I, I'm certainly not against trans rights. I believe in equal rights for everyone. But there is a debate about whether or not we should reform the Gender Recognition Act, and if so, uh, how we should do that. And so that's an issue. And then, of course, there's the issues surrounding Alex Salmon's um, trial and acquittal and the judicial review case and the inquiry that's ongoing. Um, so there are a number of issues that are causing friction within the party. Um, and I think they haven't been properly addressed by the party leadership. And uh, I think allegations of transphobia have been thrown around in an irresponsible fashion. And that has culminated in, in my sacking and also me receiving uh, a threat of rape from somebody who was a party member. So all of that, particularly the latter point, 
incredibly shocking and awful. But let's pick apart all those different things. So you said at the beginning that the party had a reputation of huge discipline, which I absolutely did. So it perhaps wasn't used to people having any of these discussions in public. Do you feel that perhaps you shouldn't have voiced any concerns that you may have had about um, the independence route, but also the GRA? Well, I think people need to remember that I've got quite a pedigree of support for the SNP and for independence. When the Young Scottish Nationalist branch was set up in Edinburgh in 1980, the three founding members were myself, Ian Blackford and John Swinney. Both Ian and I subsequently went off and joined the Labour Party after the last big um, split in the SNP when the 79 group and the left of the party were expelled. And many of us felt very uncomfortable about that. And that's why I went off and spent some time in the Labour Party. So I think it's difficult for anyone really to call into question my commitment to the cause of independence. You know, I had a very successful career at the bar, a very well-paid and secure job with great prospects for potential future promotion to the bench as a judge. And so I didn't leave that lightly. I left that because I care passionately about the cause of, uh, of um, independence. But since I became an MP in 2015, I have tried through every possible channel open to me within the party to address concerns I had about our approach to policy on certain matters. And I have found a series of doors closed in my face. And that is why I have tried to stimulate a discussion about our strategy um, more openly and tried to get the party talking about it and used my national column to try and put out ideas. And not just my national column, I've been invited in the last year to give two major lectures, um, one at Edinburgh University in the Playfair Library and one at the Welsh Centre for Governance in Cardiff. Um, about the future of Scotland in Europe. So, you know, that's part of the function of being a politician is that you will get asked to give lectures. And simply putting ideas out there is not to criticise the leadership. And I think there's something slightly wrong with the SNP that it's felt at present, that it's felt that to wish to debate policy is somehow to be critical of the leadership. And I think we see this at its height in uh, some people's approach to the debate about reform of the Gender Recognition Act, where they use on social media the hashtag no debate. How can we be uh, responsible politicians in a democracy which supports free speech if we're saying that there are certain areas where there can be no debate? Particularly on the Gender Recognition Act, Joanna, I'd like to, if you like, dispel some myths that fly about. Are you against any reform of the GRA? No. Do you believe self-ID is wrong? I think it... I don't support self-identification because I think the idea that a man can self-identify as a woman with no procedural steps to go through opens up the possibility that some men, and I'm not talking about trans people, I'm talking about men, will abuse that in order to gain access to women-only space for their sexual gratification. So that's why I have concerns about self-identification. And I think it's really important to look at what the SNP promised to do in the 2016 manifesto for the Holyrood elections. The SNP promised to reform the Gender Recognition Act. There was no mention of introducing a policy of self-identification. 
And actually, I think it's important to also understand that nobody's suggesting that we should be rolling back the rights that trans people have in Scotland. And I think it's a real worry that a narrative has grown up that somehow the rights of trans people are under threat. As I said earlier, I don't think any mainstream politician is suggesting that trans rights should be rolled back. And I think if trans people are starting to believe that, then that's a very real concern. What I'm about is finding a com an accommodation between the desire to reform the Gender Recognition Act and the requirement, and it's a legal requirement under the Equality Act, to respect women's sex-based rights. And in fact, myself and a trans woman who's a constituent of mine wrote to Shirley Ann Somerville about this in the summer of two, 2019, suggesting that the way to take some of the heat out of this debate and to reach an accommodation that people could get behind would be to hold a citizens' assembly. And I'm really sorry that that suggestion wasn't taken up. I know several other people have mentioned it recently, and I think it could be a way forward here. Of course, the SNP at present, uh, the leadership in Holyrood, have parked the idea of reform of the Gender Recognition Act. But it's going to come back because people feel strongly about it. And I think it needs to be discussed in a respectful way that uh, doesn't uh, dismiss women who respect legitimate, who air legitimate concerns about women's sex-based rights under the Equality Act. Don't dismiss them as transphobes. Just think about a, what a transphobe means. A transphobe is somebody who is phobic about trans people. I have a friendship with a trans woman dating back to the days when I first came out as a lesbian on the scene in Edinburgh in the 1980s. One of my most loyal and hardworking activists is a trans woman. I am not transphobic. And the people who are propagating the idea I'm transphobic are not only being unfair to me, they're actually putting me in danger because of the level of abuse I've received, which included a death threat in 2019 and in the last week has included a series of very scary and frightening and threatening messages which have led to a man being arrested and charged with a serious offence. And as I say, I, I can't comment on that too much at present, but I can tell you, uh, I can't tell you who the man was, but I can tell you that he was a party member. And that's a very serious matter against the background of the abuse that I've been receiving from a small but vocal minority of young men, and I'm sorry to say some young women in the party over the last 18 months on Twitter. Do you think, I mean, we know that you are one of the most abused female politicians um, in Westminster. I think Diane Abbott was... Um, gets more abuse than you. Have you had the support of your party leadership in, in helping you just deal with that? It pains to say me that I haven't. And what I want to say is that I'm not putting myself in the same league as Diane Abbott. Diane Abbott receives the most appalling abuse and she receives it, not just because she's a woman, but also because she's black. The abuse I receive is because I'm a woman and because I'm, I'm a lesbian. And because I'm a woman and a lesbian who speaks her mind. And I think <laughs> a lot of the characterization of me as a, a difficult person is because I'm a middle-aged woman who speaks her mind. And many, you'll know yourself, Mandy, it's quite common for middle-aged women who speak their minds to be described as difficult by those who don't really want to hear uh, what they're saying. But no, I'm afraid to say I haven't received the support. I've asked for the compl my complete, I've asked for 
the issue of the abuse I've received to be dealt with through the SNP complaints process. I've been asking for that now for over a year and a half, and it hasn't happened. And I was very upset and very hurt that nobody in the leadership of my party has condemned the abuse that I received last week, which included an, a threat of serious sexual violence. That's, that's, that's where we've got to in this debate. And you know, I guess what I would say, Mandy, is I am a pretty strong person and I have a very loving family, a very loving girlfriend, and some fantastic staff who work for me and a lot of support within the party. But I think somebody who didn't have that would probably have cracked up under the strain I've been put under. And I also have to say that if I, if my 2014 self, who put herself forward to be selected as a candidate for the SNP in 2014, if I could have seen what was going to happen and the level of abuse I would receive from within the SNP, the repeated attempts to smear me from within my own party, then I would not have stood for office. And I'm sure, I have no doubt, because I receive emails about this, that there are many other women who are looking at my treatment and thinking, I don't want to go into politics. Within, within, the, SN, within the SNP, because the party, I think it needs, there's problems in other parties, but I'm concerned about the SNP because I don't want to live in a Scotland where women can receive the level of abuse and threats that I have and it be swept under the carpet in the way it has been. The problem is you're in a, almost a no-win situation here because by even saying the things that you're saying, um, which are entirely legitimate and rooted in the abuse that you've received, you're seen as disloyal. I know it is. It's a catch-22. And uh, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do. Am I just supposed to shut up and take it for the sake of the party? Ignore the fact that a party member has made serious threats against me, including sexual violence, for the sake of the party. Is that what's being suggested? I would find that very surprising. And I think that would, if that's what's being suggested, I think people internationally would take a very dim view of Scottish politics if women were supposed to keep quiet about that sort of thing. I don't think that, I don't think that's generally what is being suggested, but there seems to be something particular to me that I have to just shut up and put up with it. But there does seem that there's a selective um, defending of certain people, I guess, by the First Minister. Um, I guess that has to be said. So publicly, she has made a couple of statements about women um, that were getting bullying during campaigning to be candidates. And again, there was the video about members leaving over alleged transphobia. Have you had a call from the First Minister offering support to you? I'm not going to criticise the First Minister. Um, you've outlined the facts of the matter and they speak for themselves. But you've, you've asked me a question, I'll answer it directly. No, I have not had any contact from the First Minister. Are you a typical example of that awful Scottish characteristic of the tall poppy syndrome? <laughs> well, I mean, again, I think the facts speak for themselves. Um, you know, it's very difficult for the SNP Westminster Group to make any tangible gains at Westminster because we are constantly outvoted by the fact that the Tories have a majority. Even in the last parliament, which was more of a hung parliament, it was difficult for us to make tangible gains. But I suppose I've made the I've defeated the British government 
twice in the European Court of Justice when I joined together with Andy Whiteman and others on the Article 50 case and in the prorogation case where I was the lead petitioner in the, um, in, in the Scottish case that went to the Supreme Court. And really, because of that, there's been a lot of speculation about whether I might be a future leader of the SNP. And I think that has brought a lot of trouble and difficulty my way. Um, what I will say is that some of the reports I read in the press about the attitude of my colleagues in the Westminster group towards me, I do not recognise as representative of the majority of my colleagues. It's true to say that there's a minority of my colleagues who, who really don't like me very much. They will have to explain why, and they will have to explain why they think it's appropriate to go on Twitter attacking me because they don't like me. And they will have to, the party needs to explain why some MPs are allowed to attack me on Twitter with impunity and not be disciplined, despite the fact it's against the standing orders and the code of conduct of the party. But of course, matters in relation to attacks made upon me and an English barrister by an MP are now uh, subject to litigation. And I don't really want to say too much more about them now. In terms of reshuffles then, so what happened last week was, um, on one hand, Ian Blatford would say that he was reshuffling the front bench team at Westminster because he wanted to encourage new talent. On the other hand, people would say, you were sacked because you were a bit too gobby, (laughs) which is is right. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, you'd really have to ask Ian Blackford, which is correct. Um, I mean... Ian didn't inform me that I was leaving the front bench until 30 minutes before he informed other people, including the public. And fortunately for me, I I had a tip off, so I was able to prepare myself and it it wasn't the nasty surprise, which was presumably planned. But the reasons for my removal from the front bench have not been made clear to me. I don't think anyone could seriously argue that I wasn't doing a good job as the Justice and Home Affairs spokesperson. So I think the reasons are political rather than related to my ability to do the job. If it's to be said it's because of my behaviour, then I query the behaviour of some other people uh, within the group on Twitter. And I think I'll just leave that there. I mean, there are reports, obviously they all come from unnamed sources, about group meetings yes, being very difficult, yeah. that you were a bully, that you played the victim. I mean, how... It's not true, Mandy. I mean, no. I wouldn't normally comment on what happens at a group meeting because that should be private. But as others have briefed about what happened at a group meeting a couple of weeks ago, I'll take the opportunity to put my side of affairs. There was a group meeting a couple of weeks ago which was very heated and which a woman left the meeting in tears. It has been suggested that she left the meeting in tears or implied because of something I said or did. I didn't say or do anything at that meeting. I joined the meeting late because I was in the chamber in my role as Home Affairs spokesperson leading on a bill that was in the chamber. I joined the meeting late and didn't hear everyone who spoke, but I didn't speak at that meeting. And nobody directly addressed my behaviour at that meeting. The impression has been given that a woman left in tears because of something that I said or did. I didn't say or do anything at the meeting. A woman did leave the meeting in tears. She left the meeting in tears because she brought up a concern about the fact that she had been called a trans-exclusionary radical feminist and she was upset about that. And then somebody else in the group meeting was rude to her and that's why she left in tears. It was nothing to do with me and in actual fact, as I say, The rudeness came from somebody 
on the side of the debate who wishes to shut down any debate or discussion. So as I say, I absolutely categorically do not brief about what happens in group meetings and do not normally comment on them. But given that a misleading uh, impression has been put repeatedly into the press, I'm really grateful to have the opportunity from you to put the record straight and would ask people to reflect on why anonymous briefers would wish to give the impression that I had caused trouble at a meeting which I joined late and didn't speak at. I think that rather speaks volumes. For those of us, and I'm including you in this, because despite what people are saying uh, on Twitter at the weekend that this is about careerists, you actually had a career outside of politics. And and when grown-ups and people that have had careers listen to some of this stuff, it just seems like the playground. It is, and I've never seen behaviour like it in my life. As you say, you know, as you say, Mandy, I, I had a career. Um, if I wanted status and money then I would have stayed at the bar where I was a senior QC and had a very good chance of becoming a judge and going into politics has caused a dramatic drop in my income but I don't make any complaint about that because as a member of parliament I'm still earning considerably more than most people in the country but to suggest I've done this for as a careerist is really quite ludicrous and um so so that so there's that to Question my commitment to the cause to me seems extremely unfair given my history in in the party. Um, if there are careerists in the SNP, then I would say that I'm not one of them. I think a lot of this as well came, you, you touched on the idea that middle-aged women who speak out or talk about ambition are cast in a certain light. Now, in the past, when you've been asked, would you be interested in that top job? You haven't shied away from that. Why is that seen as a negative? I don't understand. You know, I don't understand, Mandy. I mean, I'll say this for the record. I don't want to be the leader of the SNP. I'm having to think very seriously about my future at present. Um, At the moment, I'm elected as a member of parliament to Westminster, and I'm there to represent my constituents, and I will do that for the rest of my term. But as to what I do thereafter, it will depend on whether the party is able to address the problems that currently exist. You know, many of my colleagues in the legal profession are deeply shocked by my treatment within the SNP, and they're suggesting to me that I should go back to the bar because I'm well respected there and uh, I am could work there again. And it's it's an option I have to consider. But I want to serve my country and I want to help my country get independence. But there is a limit to how much I can put my, not just myself, but also my girlfriend and my family through. You know, my, there are children in my family group who are really upset about what's happened to their auntie. And my 84-year-old father, who has been voting SNP since the 60s, cannot sleep at night because he thinks somebody is going to take a pop at me, to use his words. Now, that's the atmosphere that I'm living in. And I have to say that if the problems that have led to me living in that atmosphere are not addressed, then I will have to very seriously consider my future in politics. You don't appear to be a woman that would walk away from a fight, though, either. But presumably you didn't expect the fight to come from within. No, I didn't. I didn't. And when you're under this 
level, when one receives this level of abuse and the threats I receive, it doesn't affect, as I said, just me. It also affects my partner and my family. And I have to think about them as well. And there are people in my family who are very, very upset and distressed about the effect, about the events of the last week or so. And I don't mean the sacking from the front bench. I mean the way in which some might think that a pylon upon me on Twitter was encouraged by people from within my party and there's been no condemnation of it. That's what really upsets my 84-year-old father who's been in the party and been supporting the party since the 60s. That's what's really upsetting. Do you think that's true that the party have almost given the green light to those kind of abusers because by not condemning some of the stuff on Twitter against you, they allow it to continue? I think others will judge the answer to that question. I mean, it seems to me, Joanna, that it, it's almost people in other parties that are offering public defence of you. I mean, I thought Harriet Harman's words were very lovely as she welcomed you to be the deputy chair of the Human um, Rights Committee. Do you find that, that other people in other parties are just looking on a little aghast? Well, they are, but I've had a lot of support, both from colleagues within the Westminster group privately, and I think anyone looking at the situation would understand why they might be a bit nervous about supporting me publicly, but I've had a lot of private support from members of the Westminster group and members of the Holyrood group, and I have been overwhelmed by the messages I've received from party members, and I'm actually spending a fair bit of my time at the moment phoning up party members and agreeing to speak at branch meetings to address people's concerns about the way that I've been treated. And I'm very committed to telling people that if they're concerned about anything in the party, they should remain and fight their corner rather um, than leave. But I think, you know, you're not the only person to comment on the contrast between the public support I've received from politicians in the Labour Party, politicians in the conservative party which is quite funny from my point of view um conservatives in uh, members of the liberal democrats and members of plight cymru um and you know i can tell you that um one of the nice things that's happened over the last week is i've received bouquets of flowers from all around the world from ireland and australia as well as from within scotland and england some very nice wine and a lot of boxes of chocolates <laughs> so i'm not doing too badly but these have come largely from people I've met during my work of the last five and a half years. And I've also had a, a huge amount of support from my colleagues at the bar. So you know, I'm not without support. There just is, is an issue when the source of the problem is internal and it's not being tackled. There's an issue there. Do you worry? I, I mean, you've, you've talked about it a bit, but the actual safety, your safety, how much do you care about that? Do you worry? I do worry a bit. You know, I last week, uh, you know, I wouldn't have gone out for a walk on my own or have gone anywhere on my own because I just felt, I felt, well, you know, if one person is prepared to make those sort of threats, what, what could happen? So I would only go out with, with my girlfriend with me. And how is she coping with it? <laughs> um, well, she's a very strong person. She has her own career. She's a very well-respected writer. Um, she... Uh, you know, she's upset for me. It's not pleasant for her. It's very stressful for her. But I have to say she's been an absolute rock and um, I couldn't have managed without her. Do you think you'd get a better reaction, Joanne, if you just broke down? Huh. Um, possibly. But, you know, if I break down, it will be in private, Mandy, not in public. 
And is that happening? I have been upset, yeah. Not by being sacked from the front bench, because I saw that coming. Um, and it was, as I say, I had a tip-off from a well-wisher and was um, prepared for it. Um, it's the it's the abuse, the threats, and the fact that they're coming from within the party and the fact that they're not being addressed. That's what upsets me. Because, you know, I've worked really hard to try and advance the cause. I work hard for my constituents and I don't think I deserve this. And so that is deeply hurtful and upsetting. Have you ever felt anything like this in your life before? No. <laughs> I've never encountered anything like this in my life before, except um, in 2015, um, during my first campaign to be elected as a member of parliament, myself and my young female campaign manager were subjected to really, I'd say, a campaign of bullying and terrorization from a, a, a male activist within the party. And that was the first time in my life I'd really encountered what I've gone on to continue to encounter over the last five and a half years. And you know, we tried to address it with SNPHQ and we were told to humor him because he was upset because we'd lost the referendum. So that was my first encounter with failure to deal with bullying, intimidation and abuse in a professional environment. You know, prior to going into politics, I worked as, as a in universities and at the Scottish Law Commission as a solicitor and then at the bar for many years. I worked as a standing junior to the Scottish government. I worked as a prosecutor, spent three and a half years working as a sex crimes prosecutor, which is partly informs my approach to women's sex-based rights. In the Crown Office, I worked in very high-pressured environments. I worked in teams at the Crown Office. And I've never encountered anything like what I've encountered within the SNP over the last five and a half years. When you look back, Joanna, and think about how you felt as a young gay woman, unable, I guess, at one point to come out, how did that feel, that that kind of struggle, that kind of frustration, how does that equate to how you're feeling now about oppression, if you like? It's a really interesting question. I mean, I suppose I'm 54 now. I came out in the mid-80s, and I've just actually finished watching the the Russell T Davies series, It's a Sin. And to me, that was so close to my experience. I found it so nostalgic watching it. Um, it reminded me of what, it was just like being taken back in time to the 80s. Um, you know, I university friends died of AIDS. One of the first things I did when I finished watching the program was phone up a friend who survived but lost the love of his life to make sure that he was okay and to ask him if he'd watched it. It was a very intense time, the 80s. You need to remember that then people were losing their, we see it in the, it's a sin series, people were losing their jobs for being gay and you had no comeback. It was okay to discriminate against pe people. And I came from a very Catholic background as well. We all know the history of the Catholic Church's homophobia. So it was difficult for me to come to terms within my family with my sexuality. And, diff and I worried about my future career, would there be jobs that I couldn't do? You know, when I was at university, I actually wanted to be an MP when I was a teenager in university. But you look at the treatment of people like Maureen Cahoon, the first out lesbian MP who died last week. You know, she was deselected by her party and lost her seat because she was a, a lesbian. So I worried about those things in the 80s. 
But they didn't stop me coming out and they didn't stop me campaigning. You know, I campaigned across the country. You know, I went to demonstrations in Edinburgh, Glasgow, Manchester and London against Section 28. And if you think back, the SNP were pretty ambivalent about Section 28. You can see quotes from leading SNP politicians, some of whom are now in government at Holyrood, who were very ambivalent about repealing Section 28 20 years ago. But I've always been clear on that. So it's really, really galling, having been out since the 80s and having campaigned against discrimination and homophobia, now to be accused of transphobia simply because I'm sticking up for women's sex-based rights. I find it really galling. And some of my most vehement accusers are people who, let's just say, are, have come rather later to the fight against equality than I did. You know, if you look at my history, I've been fighting for equality since the 1980s. Some of the people now accusing me of being a transphobe with no basis were nowhere in that fight. So as, an, as someone who's been out for all that time as a lesbian and someone who's also a feminist, it's really annoying as well as upsetting to have my position misrepresented. In your kind of darker, more private moments, when you're trying to make sense out of all of this, like I'm trying to do right now, and you know, understand why you're getting such a level of vitriol from some sections, what do you think is at its heart? Do they just not like you? Uh, well, I think I think what what we need to remember is it's only coming from a small minority. You know, if, if we want to look at whether or not SNP members like me, let's look at the NEC election at the end of November when I stood for one of the two parliamentarian positions. I got more votes than all the other parliamentarians put together. So, you know, I think there was five people that stood. I got more votes than all the other four put together. And even Alison Thewlis, who's very popular and a parliamentarian who I respect greatly, came a very distant second. So I think when the membership get to vote, the membership show that they like and respect me. But when my constituents got to vote in December 2019, they returned me with a 12,000 majority. That was an 11,000 increase on my previous uh, majority. So I don't think it's the SNP members as a whole or my constituents as a whole who dislike me. I think there is a very small, noisy minority of people in the party who caused me trouble. And I think it needs to be dealt with. It needs to be dealt with uh, by the leadership. And I'm not saying I'm I'm not saying I'm perfect and but anything I've said on Twitter has been to defend myself. And I think that coming to the leadership, that's the issue, because the shorthand of this is that you're a Salmon supporter and others are Sturgeon supporters. I mean, how... I find that really frustrating. You know, I think the SNP needs to grow up and realise that the party is not just about the leader. Alec was a great leader, probably the greatest leader the party's ever had. He nearly took us to independence. Nicola is a good leader as well. She's very widely respected. You need only to look at her ratings. And I'm not a Salmondista or a Sturgeonista. I'm somebody who kind of does their own thing. I think that's what annoys people. And I think some of the vitriol directed at me is because despite abuse and bullying and repeated attempts to silence me and indeed smear me with untrue allegations about being a bully, and people will remember that when I was accused of being a bully, after I was completely exonerated after an independent investigation. So I think the noisy minority of people who don't like me 
have become even more disliking of me because despite their best attempts to silence me, bully me, intimidate me and smear me, I'm not, I haven't gone anywhere and I still say what I think. So I think that's why it's so vitriolic, but it is not representative of the party as a whole. And we have objective evidence from the size of my mandate when I stood for the NEC last year that it's not representative of the party as a whole. Where do you worry that this is all going? Because it feels like a tipping point and it's felt like that for some time. Well, let's be honest. I mean, we're recording this after Peterborough gave evidence to the committee after certain allegations have been put in the public domain by somebody who works for the party at HQ. I'm not going to comment on the specifics of any of that, but clearly matters are, are coming to a head. Now, I'm not in a leadership position, so I'm not in a position to give leadership on how those matters are dealt with. But somebody's going to do that. And there may come a time when the SNP has to reflect very seriously on what's happened in recent years to try and make sure that it doesn't happen again and to address shortcomings which have led to us being where we are at the moment. I mean, I am inundated today, Mandy, with people wanting me to go on television or radio to talk about what's happening at the Salmond Inquiry, and I'm refusing to do that for obvious reasons. But this is not going away, and it seems that there are issues that the Inquiry, for whatever reason, is unable to address. All I would say is that the truth has a habit of coming out in the long run. History tells us that history of political scandals tell us that. So quite apart from anything that people might feel or say about Joanna Cherry, there are other issues in the SNP that really have nothing to do with me that are coming to the fore and coming to a head at present. Do you think there is a political scandal? I think that remains to be determined, but I worry that um, the committee uh, at Holyrood seems to be disintegrating and seems unable to address the issues it was set up to address. I know that committees at Holyrood are not as well resourced in terms of clerking and legal advice and support as committees at Westminster. Um, and But it pains me to say this as a Scottish nationalist. If this inquiry was being held by a Westminster committee, then I don't think people would be behaving in quite such a bipartisan fashion as they are on the committee at present. There's a bizarre situation at the moment where clearly the SNP are being polled um, to take a, potentially a majority again in an election in three months' time. And yet amid all of that, there's the committee, there's two, there's two inquiries going on, there's clearly a lot of... Um, questions to be answered i mean do you do you feel that we are at a point where the public need to get some clarity about what is going on yeah i do actually and and for your own purposes i mean i i want to get a feel for what it's like going down to london when you can um and being in that westminster group and feeling as if people you're sitting with people that are briefing against you, that are talking about you, that, that perhaps don't even like you. How does that feel? At times it has been extremely unpleasant, but I would stress that the majority of my colleagues 
are courteous towards me and I have good relations with the majority of my colleagues. Um, so really that's all I want to say about that. Do you have friends within the group? I have very good friends within the group. I would count Philippa Whitford, Tommy Shepherd, Chris Stevens, Patricia Gibson as good friends within the group. I hope that won't get them into trouble. And John, the other thing, you know, I know you as someone that has a good time, a good laugh, is quite relaxed. Why don't we see more of that? Is this just such a hellish time? Well, I think, you know, people haven't really seen a lot of me in the last year and a half, um, because apart from in the chamber at Westminster, I haven't been doing as many media appearances as, as I used to, because suffice to say that I am not the politician of choice that uh, those advising the Westminster group want to put on the television or radio at the moment. Um, but I think people who know me, know me as you know me, Mandy, that I've got you know, I've got a good sense of humour. Sometimes I have to keep that under control. And um, the attempts to paint me as a very serious bully, again, have just come from a very small minority of people and there's no evidence to support them. Um, but I think those those who, who know me tend to love me. Because <laughs> I may say so. Well, there's obviously a few, a few exceptions in the Westminster group. But, you know, my girlfriend said to me at the weekend when I was sitting talking to the cat, she said, I wish I could record you talking to the cat for people who think you're a mean bully and put it out on Twitter. People would have such a good laugh. Um, and I think, I th you know, it, my public appearances are professional appearances, you know, in the chamber talking about really serious things raising really serious issues about the British government's human rights abuses and breaches of, of the rule of law. Likewise, my media appearances, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not appearing as a stand-up comedian, I'm appearing as somebody to talk about serious issues. Um, I think sometimes there's a bit of a double standard applied, um, again, because I'm a middle-aged woman. I mean, nobody expects uh, Ian Blackford or, um, I don't know, well, Pete Bishop perhaps is a bit of a comedian, but nobody expects Ian Blackford to go on television to amuse the masses. So I don't know why it would be expected that I would do that. Well, never mind all that. What were you saying to the cat? <laughs> I was just telling him how much I love him. <laughs> and how he, makes, you... how he makes my life worth living. <laughs> do, you, do you hope that this starts to resolve itself or do you just expect more of the same to carry on i think there's going to be more trouble <laughs> before it gets better um i mean i've got from my personal point of view i'm just going to get on with my work um you know i'm primarily at westminster to represent my constituents i spend a lot of time at the moment speaking to individuals and businesses in the constituency about the difficult situation they find themselves in as a result of the COVID crisis and as a result of Brexit. I'll continue to put forward my constituents' concerns at Westminster. Again, at Westminster, I'm the deputy chair of an important committee. We're currently working on looking at the British government's latest attacks on the Human Rights Act, looking at freedom of expression appropriately enough, and also looking at human rights during the COVID crisis and the very important issue of the rights of people who want to visit their relatives in care homes and are, are and are currently unable to do so. So I've got plenty of work to get on at Westminster. Within the party, I'm still in the National Executive Committee. I've got some big plans to do some very important policy work with the Policy Development uh, Committee 
lots of branches want me to come and, and speak to them. So I've got plenty of work um, to be getting on with in the meantime. Would you appreciate a call from Nicola Sturgeon? That's a matter for the leader. She's really busy at the moment. Clearly, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We've got an election coming up, and there are some really difficult issues for her to handle around the Salmond inquiry. So I don't think I'm, I think it's pretty self-evident that I'm not top of her list. Would you appreciate a call from, the, from Nicola Sturgeon? I think any member of parliament who has been on the receiving end of a campaign of abuse culminating in a threat from party members would appreciate a call from their party leader. Let's just leave it at that theoretical level. And what would you like to say to her? I think I'd like to say what I'd like to say that I am not her enemy. I have no intention of challenging her for the leadership. She, like me, is a feminist. And so I would like her to call out the abuse that I've received and to condemn the fact that this abuse and some threats are coming at me from within the party. Is this making you miserable? No, it's not actually, strangely enough. Um, you know, I've got used to repeated attacks from repeated attacks from within the party on social media repeated briefing against me and repeated attempts to smear me. That has become my life over the last couple of years. So I've actually got used to it. And I feel quite strengthened by the fact that I've managed to resist it with my reputation intact. Um, so it's not making me miserable. It's making some of the people around me a bit miserable, which upsets me. And it causes me days and moments of misery. But I'm absolutely dedicated to the cause of Scottish independence. And all I really want it's the chance to serve my country. And uh, it's unfortunate that a small minority of people in the SNP find that so deeply challenging. It puzzles me. I can only imagine that they themselves have some insecurity which leads them to find that so challenging. But it's not making me miserable and uh, it won't deter me from what I believe to be a very important cause. But, you know, Joanna, that's a hellish thing that if somebody, if another woman said to you, I've just got used to this, it's just my life, it's just the abuse that I'm taking is just how it is, you'd be horrified. I would be horrified. And any right thinking bystander should be horrified. But what I would say is that the aims of the briefing against me, the smears and the attempts to paint me as something I'm not, are clearly the aim of that is to bully me and intimidate me into silence. And I'm absolutely determined that they won't succeed. As someone much greater than I said, a week is a very long time in politics. And believe me, I know Scottish politics is never boring. So don't leave it long. Make sure you come back and join us on Politically Speaking. And remember that you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And do tell your friends because everybody has an interest in politics.